0: The following message was recorded at Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. For more information and resources from Shades Valley, please visit us at ShadesValley.org. Our scripture reading for this morning is from 1 John 4 and verses 7 through 21. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. And this, the love of God, was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world, so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. to know and to believe the love God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this, love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, "I have love God, I love God and hates his brother," he is a liar. For he does not he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this is and this commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: Thank you. Thank you. Good morning. It's a pleasure to be with you. Uh, I went ahead and took my mask off. I'm, uh, I'm vaccinated, so hopefully, uh, even if germs are passed, it will not be very bad for you. It's a pleasure to be here. I've heard about your church. Um, often, and uh, it's also good to see some familiar faces, some some, some new faces, um, but I'm glad to be here to be able to share uh, God's Word with you. Uh, for those of you who detect a slight accent, that might be an understatement, uh, that's because I was born in the Dominican Republic, uh, and I was... Uh, Came to the United States when I was 13, so many, many years ago, and uh, moved to Birmingham. Ended up in Birmingham in 2008, and have, have been here ever since. And there's my wife, Kristen. Some of you know her, and my son, Philip, our son, Philip, who is a, a Minecraft master, uh, and it's. Uh, A flowering tennis player as well. So we're glad he's here. Well, shall we pray together before we uh, meditate on on the word of God? Yep. Almighty God, unto whom all hearts are open. And unto whom no secrets are hid. Cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of thy Holy Spirit. That we may perfectly love you and worthily magnify your holy name. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. I'm preaching from this text. As many of you know, uh, we, we come from an Anglican church, and uh, this was one of the passages that uh, was in the calendar to preach. And I'm glad that, that it was this text, because it is, uh, I would say it is my favorite passage of the Bible, uh, particularly uh, verse 8. Um, So, what a joy to be able to share with you from that text. It is easy to share from from this text, but at the same time, it's difficult. uh, Because uh, I think the concept of the love of God, it's, uh, it's nothing greater to think and to meditate about. I forget now who it was who said that the two most important answers... For human beings, uh, excuse me, uh, the two most important questions for human beings to answer are the following two questions. Who is God and who are we? The answer to these two questions, we are told, will determine the entirety of our existence. The two key questions of humanity. Who is God and who are we? The order of the questions is important. If you begin with the question, who am I? And only in light of that discovery of self, then ask the question, who is God? It is likely that you will construct a God who looks a lot like you. So many people have gone that way. Trying to tackle the two most important questions. Who is God and who am I? They begin with the question. Who am I? And sometimes construct a God. Who looks a lot like them. And in fact this is how most humans. Throughout history have ordered the questions. Archaeologists. Who have made discoveries about the ancient gods of Mesopotamia. Way in the ancient Near East. These archaeologists have been struck at how similar the statuettes, little statuettes that they have found of gods and goddesses, how similar they are to the people who built them. Actually, the gods and goddesses of ancient Mesopotamia look like the elites of those ancient Near Eastern societies. Perhaps a bit larger or more beautiful, an idealization of who they are. But when you see the paintings of the people, and then when you see the statuettes of the god, of the gods and goddesses, the gods and goddesses look a lot like the people. Just what those people would actually want to look like. When we, when we move forward many centuries, we encounter the famous statement of the Greek philosopher Protagoras. We remember the words of Protagoras, right? Man is the measure of all things. The modern Protagoras, coming a few centuries later, is actually, is actually a neurologist, not a philosopher, and his name is Freud. For him, humans could overcome all sorts of fears and phobias only when they peeled away the external layers. With the help of psychoanalysis. And got to the bottom of self. Only then could they find true freedom. So I'm suggesting that the idea. That who we are. Has been placed as the most important question. Is something that has been the case throughout history. Whether you go to the very ancient gods. Of the near east. To the. Uh, Transformative culture of the Greeks that began to say that humanity is the measure of all things to the modern time, psychoanalysis. When Freud said that to know who you are, you can't look at the surface of who you are. You have to peel the layers. And when you peel those layers by talking to a psychiatrist or to a, or to a psychologist, you finally get to the bottom of who you are. And when you get to the bottom of who you are, then you find wellness and freedom. The concept that the most important answer in life is to the question, who am I, actually dominates our contemporary world, whether that be in the form of abstract art, novels, the theater, or self-help books. Everywhere you look in our culture, this is the question that is trying to be answered. Who am I? You find it in movies, you find it in books, everywhere. In fact, one of the most viewed TV shows of the last few years deals with just this question. The show is called Westworld. Westworld is a park that costs thousands of dollars to visit. Those who go to the park are transported to the world of the Wild West, the most American of genres. and the only original American genre, the Wild West. Europeans cannot say that that's original. That's original to us Americans, the Wild West. So if you go to the park, the West World, you are transported to the Wild, Wild West. The guests get to dress up like cowboys and ladies, ride on horses, go on adventures, and really indulge any desire and vice. The West World Park is full of hosts. Humans who live in the park to make the adventures of the guests possible. Except that the hosts are not humans, but actually robots who look and act just like humans. Season one of the show centers on a particular host named Dolores, which in Spanish means pains or pain, and her search for sentience. Her maker... The engineer who put her together teaches her that she can reach consciousness and become human. But to do that, she must reach the center of the maze. A sort of game. The maze turns out to be a metaphor for self-discovery. It's not an actual game that you play, but it's a way of speaking of self-discovery. Only when Dolores has ruthlessly gone inwards into the self through suffering and pain can she really reach the center of the maze and there become alive and free the premise of the show is that to know the self is to know life i would suggest that this is the dominant message of contemporary culture not excluding liberal churches You go to many churches, and what you hear is not the God of the scriptures, the gospel of Jesus, but myths and stories that ultimately are about you. In this case, your aim in life should ultimately be to know what you are made of. I will go further and say that this is a secular foundational American myth. And when I say the word myth, I don't mean a lie. I'm talking about a story that makes a society tick. Again, the idea that we should go fur, the the idea that we should push to the extreme, go beyond the traditionally imposed barriers to reach the last frontier in order to truly find, find freedom. I would say that that is the foundational American myth. And we apply this myth to all areas of life. Actually, I would say that this is not just an American ideal. It is a human ideal. It is just probably emphasized more in America. After all, every culture needs a myth. More often than not, then, we're driven by the question, Who am I? What is the stuff that I am made of? We push ourselves to the extreme in athletics work, play, freedom, because we are obsessed with the self. What about you? What is driving your existence? What do you live for? Now, I want to make clear that Getting to know ourselves is not, as such, an evil thing. You may have concluded that from my initial comments, but that's not what I'm saying. Getting to know ourselves is not an evil thing. God made us beautifully complex beings. Self-contemplation, when ordered properly, can be healthy. We look at ourselves in the mirror every day. Or I hope we do. Curiosity about the self can lead to worthwhile discoveries. The problem is in the question of priority and ordering, or we might say, ultimate goal. Consider the way that the great theologian, John Calvin, begins his great Institutes of the Christian Religion. He's a very famous theologian who uh, has shaped a lot of Protestant theology, what you and I believe. He says the following, quote, Nearly all the wisdom we possess, that is to say, true and sound wisdom, consists of two parts, knowledge of God and of ourselves. But while joined by many bonds, which one precedes and brings forth the other is not easy to discern. Ultimately, Calvin concludes, It is certain that man never achieves a clear knowledge of himself unless he has first looked upon God's face and then descends from contemplating him to scrutinize himself. So John Calvin makes things a little bit more complex. When we ask the question of who is God and who am I, it's not so much which one you ask first, but more which one has the priority, which one is the most important We ask the two questions at the same time. Life is not as neat as, okay, now I'm going to find out about myself. And after 10 years, I'm going to find out about God. We usually do it together. And Calvin says, there's no problem with that. Ultimately, the question is, once you have looked at God, do you come back down and look at yourself and scrutinize yourself in light of the knowledge of God? Let me then summarize. When we place the knowledge of ourselves above the knowledge of God, the end is misery. Only when knowledge of God is our priority in life, can existence be worthwhile. And this leads to our text from today. This is the only text in the entire Bible that makes this this assertion in such a direct manner, namely, God is love you're not going to find another text in scripture that is going to tell you in plain prose, God is love. If we want to know who and what God is, this text is clear. God is love. But note that the passage does not spend a lot of time speaking of God's love in abstract terms. Instead, immediately, Immediately after telling us that God is love, and that His essence is love, John right away brings the being of God into connection with humanity. Furthermore, John's talk of God's love leads immediately to believers loving one another. God's love is not only something over which we rejoice independently, but it's a reality to be shared with one another if our talk of God's love does not lead to love for one another with everything that that implies including forgiving one another and sharing with those who do not have if our talk about God's love does not not lead to love for one another it is not imitating the character of God whose being love impels him to love the unlovable I will now I'd like to continue and conclude in two ways. First, let me take you through the text of uh, John 4, 7 in some detail. And then second and lastly, let me share four propositions or takeaways for further reflection in your life. So if you have your Bibles open, uh, let's uh, let's work over the text where... These two questions, I think, are found. Who is God? And what does that mean for us? Let's begin with verse 7. My translation may be different from yours because my translation is mine. It's my translation and uh, not from another Bible. Not that the other Bibles are not useful, but, you know, you like to be original sometimes. But (laughs) in any case... uh, Verse 7 begins in the following way. Beloved, let us love one another. Because love is from God. And everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. So note how John begins with that command. He includes himself in that command when he says, Beloved, let us together, let us love one another. Well, why should we love one another? The reason is anchored in who God is and where love comes from. We should love one another, he tells us in verse 7, because God is, excuse me, because love is from God. That is to say, the source of love is none other than God himself. And he continues, everyone who loves has been born of God. And furthermore, the person who loves knows God. Now, in verse 8, he's going to flip that proposition and put it in a negative way. Whoever does not love, does not know God. Why? Because God is love. In this, the love of God has been made manifest among us. That God sent His only begotten Son to the world that we might have life through Him. So, John begins by commanding us to love one another. He gives us the reason why we should love one another. It's not that it is the expedient expedient thing to do, or the cool thing to do. It is that it is the God thing to do. We should love one another because love comes from God. And if you say that you're a Christian... You have been born from God. Do you remember Nicodemus? You must be born again, Jesus told Nicodemus. And so, if God is love and you are born of God, then it follows that you too will love your neighbor as yourself. And then he puts it in a negative way. But if you don't love, if you, excuse me, but if you don't love, you don't know God because God is love. What an amazing statement. What a beautiful statement. It's the statement that keeps me going every day of my life. I would not be here if this verse of the Bible were not present. Let's keep going. Again, as I said earlier, John does not state in the abstract and give you a philosophical idea of God's being love. Rather, he tells you the action, how God shows that He is love. In this is love that he sent his only begotten son to the world that we might have life through him. Verse 10 clarifies that even further. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he himself has loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. And here is the takeaway. Beloved, if God has loved us this way, we too ought to love one another. So do you see the relationship here? The being of God, the nature of God, His being loved has repercussions for who we are as Christians, for who we are as church. If we say that we know Him... If we say that we are children of God, then we must imitate who God is. We must also uh, imitate His character because He has planted His character in us through His Holy Spirit when we became believers. And so, not to love is a contradiction of saying that we are Christians. And so, John brings together the two questions Who is God? God is love. And who are we? We are the ones who order our lives by loving God and loving neighbor. We'll come back to that shortly. <clears throat> now verse 12 is a very interesting text. It repeats one of the thoughts that you find in many passages of the Old Testament. It says, no one has ever seen God. Right? Now you say, wait a minute, what about those passages, for example, in the book of Exodus, when we are told that Moses saw God? Well, he didn't see God in his true essence. He only saw, as it were, the uh, um, mediated nature of God. No one has ever seen God yet. Excuse me. John concludes us, if we love one another... God remains in us and God's love is perfected in us. So this is really cool actually. He's saying, even though no one is able to see God directly, yet when we love one another, God's love is made concrete and is visible amongst each other when we love one another. So the invisible becomes visible In the way that we act towards one another. So the question is. Do we want to see God. In our churches. The question is. Then let us love one another. And we will see God. Verse 13 continues. In this we know that we remain in him. And he in us. Now you might think that at this point. He's going to say. Because we love one another. But notice the change he throws a curveball at us he says in this we know that we remain in him and he in us that he has given us the holy spirit Said, so, well this is strange the whole passage he has been saying uh here's how we know that we know him uh because we love him and we love one another but here he says here's how we know that we are remaining in him the holy spirit Say, wait a minute, what does the Holy Spirit have to do with everything that has been said? Well, I would say two things. Number one, I would say that this passage is a Trinitarian passage. Already in the previous verses, we heard about the Father. Then we hear about the Son who is sent to the world. And now we hear about the Holy Spirit who is given to us. See, the God of the Bible... What make the, the, the difference between the Christian God, the God of the Bible, and all the other gods, is that the Christian God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That is what makes us Christians. That we say that God eternally exists in three persons. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. If you don't believe that, then your belief is not a Christian belief. But why mention the Holy Spirit here? I think the reason is the following. It is only the Holy Spirit who empowers us to love one another. It is only the Holy Spirit who empowers us to love one another. We have this tall, difficult command. Imitate the character of God who Himself is love. Love one another. And you say, I don't know how to do that. I don't know how to do that when I have been offended by someone and sometimes it's more difficult to forgive those who are very close to us who offend us. I don't know what it means to love God when I have to deal with people who are completely different from me. I don't know how to love like God when I have to sacrifice and give all I have. I've always been about myself. I cannot do it. The good news is this, that when you become a Christian, God gives you His Holy Spirit. And His Holy Spirit enables you, empowers you to do what you cannot do for yourself. He empowers you to love even the unlovable. So I think that's why He brings the person of the Holy Spirit into this discourse here, because otherwise it would be impossible to obey the command. And then finally, he talks about uh, loving God, loving neighbor, and final judgment. In verse 16, he tells us, And we have known and believed the love which God has for us. God is love, he repeats it again. And anyone who remains in love remains in God, and God remains in him. So, when you abide in love, when you love God, and when you love neighbor, you are abiding in God. You're in communion with God. And what does that do at an existential level? What does that do in your heart? It brings a sense of security. Verse 17. In this, the love of God has been perfected with us, so that we might have confidence in the day of judgment. So that we might have confidence in the day of judgment. I think the idea here is twofold. First of all, what is your confidence? I thought of 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 the Heidelberg Catechism. What is your confidence in life and death? Yeah. What is your confidence when you are going to face God in final judgment? My confidence is that God, you are merciful. Because if you were not merciful, I couldn't stand in final judgment before you. My final hope in final judgment is, God, you are love. But there's a second dimension to this. That because God is love and I have been born from God, I have loved. And I can say, God, not only are you love, but I can see that only by your power, I have been able to keep your commands, even imperfectly. And so we gain confidence when uh, we love because it means that we serve a loving God who will have mercy on us and a God who empowers us to obey His commands. Who is God and who we are then are the two key questions for us to answer. Let me close by giving you four propositions or four takeaways to think about. Number one, who is God? The only answer to the being of God is not abstract philosophizing or observational deduction from nature. Who God is, you are not going to be able to figure out by philosophy or by observing nature. Because nature can be a tricky revealer. On a beautiful spring day, such as we have had in the last few days, when the sun is out and warm and the flowers are out and the insects are buzzing, you could reach the conclusion, Oh, God is so good. God God must be loving. But on a stormy, dark day with tornadoes coming your way and destroying your neighborhood and your city then you could reach the conclusion, mm, God is not good, God is bad. And in fact, that's how the ancient people used to think, uh, who did not have the Bible, who did not have God's revelation. They made a God for fertility, and they made a goddess for war, and then a God for storms, and so on. They wanted to make sure that all the boxes were checked. The only place where we know who God is, is in Holy Scripture. God's revelation, God's only trustworthy revelation of Himself, is found in the Bible, in Holy Scripture. Nature can help you see who God is, but only after you have looked at Scripture. And what is the answer? Who is the God of the Bible? I've already said that. The answer as to who God is, is that He is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who loves us. He's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who loves us. Now, let me take one stab at the whole concept of God is love. What does it mean when it says that God is love? I cannot leave this place without trying to explain that. It, it, uh, it would be an incomplete job. What does it mean that God is love? Here's what it does not mean. And please, I want you to hear me carefully on this. It doesn't mean that out there in the universe the idea of love is floating around somewhere and that God reaches out and gets that idea of love and makes it his own and then shares it with you. That's not what it means when he says that God is love. That would be Greek thought. That would be dualism and Platonism. Basically saying that there are two powers. Here is God and here are things like mercy and goodness and love. And those things exist independent of God. And God just Gets a hold of those things and makes it his own. That's not what it means when we say that God is love. When we say, when the Bible says that God is love, it means that God is love. He himself is love. Love is not a thing out there. Love is God acting as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in redemption. Now, you cannot twist that around and say that love is God. God. That would be a mistake. But I do want you to understand how important it is uh, to view God's love as His essence, as who He is. Love is not something that someone else invented. God is love. Okay. Takeaway number two. The love of God is revealed in His relationship to the world that He created and the world that He's redeeming. The love of God is revealed in his relationship to the world he created and is redeeming. John does not speak of God's love in the abstract, but in the concrete of the sending of the Son to save us from the wrath and judgment that our sins deserve. There is no other God. As one theologian put it, what God is as God... The divine individuality and characteristics, the essence of God, is something which we shall encounter either at the place where God deals with us as Lord and Savior, or not at all. End of quote. The God who you meet, who sends His Son Jesus Christ, is the one true God. There is no hidden God behind that God. You see? It's not like this. Oh yeah, uh, God sent His Son Jesus to die for us because he loves us. But, but maybe. Maybe there is really another God. Maybe that's not really who he is. No. Who he is. Is the one who sends his son to die for our sins. There is no other God besides that. That's your God. Third takeaway. Who are we? Well. Well. We are those whose goal it is to love one another because God has loved us and commands us to love Him by loving others. That's a little long, let me repeat it. Who are we? We are those whose goal it is to love one another because God has loved us and commands us to love Him by loving others. Who we are begins with... Whose we are. Who we are begins with whose we are. Do not seek your identity apart from God. At the end it will only lead to a dead end. And to misery. Abundant life is only experienced. When our priorities are ordered properly. And that is when we put God first. In our lives. To conclude Your fourth proposition or fourth takeaway. The life of God, the life of love, is a life of community. Otherwise, it does not exist. It is in this community that we experience the love of God in the church. You will not experience the love of God when you live for yourself. When you lock yourself up. The love of God is only experienced in the Christian, in the concreteness of the Christian community. Sometimes the best apologetic and assurance of our faith is simply being part of the people of God. Sometimes when our faith is dragging and when we're full of doubts, we get involved with the people of God and the love of God comes to us through those people. And our hearts are assured that yes, God is there and He is the loving God. It is in this communal life, this communal life of love, that we experience the Holy Spirit and therefore the love of God. Let's pray together. Lord God, we praise You this day for You our love. And there is no other God like you. You are the only God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we thank you and we praise you. And we thank you that your love for us does not depend on our love for you. But that you chose to love us even before you created us. And you continue to love us when you saw the mess that we made of our lives. Thank you that your love for us is antecedent to our love for you. We ask that you would forgive our sins, especially our lack of love for you and lack of neighbor. And thank you that you tell us in your word how to deal with sin, not to deny it, but to confess it. And that when we do so, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Lord, have mercy. Christ have mercy, Lord have mercy, amen.